0: Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by Living Word Church. We trust that as you hear the Word of God preached, you'll be encouraged and equipped to love God and do His will. If you're looking for a church home, please feel free to visit our Sunday morning worship service at 10 a.m. or visit our website at www.livingwordchurch.cc. And now for our message. Um, Good morning, church. Let me just read... um, passage for this morning, and then we'll pray and see what the Lord has to say to us. This is from Matthew chapter 1. You can read along behind me, starting in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, of course, Joseph wasn't aware at this point, that her pregnancy was from the Holy Spirit. He did not want to expose her to public disgrace, so he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. The angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Let's pray. God, this morning, um, we are grateful to be together Uh, in this wonderful time of year with celebrations abounding. um, We want to pause this morning um, to celebrate the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Uh, As Corey reminded us that in a nonsensical and dangerous way, you took on flesh to come and dwell with us. What a miracle that is. Lord, we thank you, and we pray that as we delve a little bit into that story this morning, we would hear what you are speaking to us, that we would be attentive to your voice, and that you would move in our hearts and change us as a result. In Jesus' name, we ask all of this. Amen. Amen. So, I don't always uh, title my sermons, but I decided to title my sermon this morning, What's in a Name?, and you're familiar with that probably, right? That's the famous question uh, that Shakespeare's Juliet asks of Romeo in the famous play. What's in a name, right? And Julio asks this question of Romeo. You might be familiar with the story because her and Romeo have found themselves in a compromising position, right? They've fallen madly in love with each other. But at some stage in their journey, Juliet finds out that Romeo's last name is Montague? Is that how I would pronounce it? Is Laurie in the room? I'm sure she can tell me. Montague? Uh, Romeo's last name is Montague. This wasn't known to Juliet until kind of late in the game here. They're already in love. Normally, that wouldn't be a big deal. But Juliet's family, the Capulets, have a bitter rivalry with the Montague family that has been longstanding for, I think, generations, if I remember this story correctly. And so the question for Juliet and for Romeo is, can we find a way to overcome the rivalry between our families? Is there a way to render insignificant what those names mean to each other? And Juliet is searching and longing for some way to get through that so that her and Romeo can stay together and their love can run its course. And so as she's searching for some way to relativize the significance of her and Romeo's last names... All of a sudden, the light bulb goes on, and she thinks she's got the answer. What's in a name? Wouldn't that which we call a rose by any other name still smell just as sweet, right? What's in a name anyway? And Juliet's question has stood the test of time, right? Today, we still sometimes reference that. What's in a name anyway? Wouldn't a rose by any other name still smell just as sweet? Wouldn't The cow manure on I-65 South in Indiana still smell just as bad if you called it something else. Wouldn't Lansing still be the greatest town this side of the Mississippi if you called it by another name? Wouldn't Allie, whose family is here today, be just as amazing by any other name than Sullivan? What's in a name anyway, right? Today we find ourselves, church, in the season of Advent, rather through the season of Advent, and we've reached Christmas, but... Don't make the mistake of thinking Christmas is over because just as the church has historically celebrated four Sundays worth of Advent and time of expectation and waiting, so at Christmas there is a celebration of 12 days, you guessed it, where we party over the fact that the Messiah has come, that Jesus has been born, and that the world is changed because of it, right? The Savior reigns as we sing, he rules the world with truth and with grace, Just as Advent is countercultural in that we sort of make an intentional effort to delay our celebration and confront the darkness in our world, so Christmas is countercultural in that when everyone else around us is already thinking about what to purchase for Valentine's Day, which is the next consumer holiday on the schedule, we're just getting started celebrating the birth of the Savior. Advent, for Advent's sake is useless, right? Waiting is not an end in itself. We wait in order to celebrate. That rhymed unintentionally. So, so when Advent draws to a close, we don't kind of flounder into whatever's next. We make a point of celebrating, right? Just as uh, so many of those first Christians did. When Advent ends and Christmas arrives, we sing with Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. We sing with Zechariah, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. We sing with Simeon, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations. And we join with the angels to sing glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Christmas is a time of celebration right? And that's why uh, the fourth candle or the fourth theme of Advent is joy, right? We've spent the last three weeks covering the themes of hope and love and faith. Peace. Hope and love and peace. Sorry, as Dave and I were researching it, like every denomination has their own themes and we weren't sure, like, we're non-denominational. Which one of you is right? So I can't keep it all straight. Um, But hope And love and peace. And the fourth candle of Advent, the fourth theme, is joy. And that's precisely because the world's longing for joy finds its fulfillment in the coming of Christ. But because so many years stand between us and the silent night, right? Because we're so far removed from the mindset of the first century Jews who were the first to receive Jesus as Messiah, it's important for us to pause and remind ourselves What exactly we're celebrating at Christmas, right? Lord knows we can't just assume that the world's reasons for celebrating Christmas are right and join with those. We have to do our due diligence to clear away 2,000 years of cultural and religious and other baggage to get a picture of what was being celebrated by Mary and Zechariah and Simeon and the angels and all those others who were the first to receive Jesus as Messiah. And our passage for this morning, I think, will help us to do just that. So when we reach Matthew chapter 1, the long story of the Old Testament has ended. The very beginning of Matthew is a long and rather strange genealogy that we're not always sure what to do with. And then, shortly after that, we find Mary and Joseph, in a way, almost, like Romeo and Juliet, in a compromising position. Right? They're engaged to be married, but during their engagement, Mary is found to be pregnant. And while other couples around them in a similar situation are probably flipping through, you know, the most popular baby names of the 100s BC or whatever, Joseph is figuring out how he can most quietly divorce Mary so as to save her from public disgrace but to be faithful to the law. He's a gentleman, but he's a devout Jewish gentleman, so he wants to try to hold those things in tension, right? So it's not quite the celebration for Joseph and Mary that it might be for some other pregnant couples in their day. But as Joseph is trying to figure out how to do this, he's drifting in and out of sleep one night as he's suffering through what must have been the heartbreak of his fiancé's infidelity to him. He's visited in a dream by an angel who tells him to stay with Mary because not only has she not been unfaithful to you, in fact, the child in her is from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph probably thinks to himself, okay, well, I hope Mary hasn't landed on a name yet because I want to have a say in this thing. But the angel says, oh wait, there's a catch. Mary's going to have a son, but you are to give him the name Jesus. Or in Joseph's parlance, in his language, you are to give him the name Yeshua. The name Yeshua in uh, Joseph's Hebrew would not have been unfamiliar to him. He was a devout Jew, right? And Yeshua was one of the, the name of one of the most significant leaders in the history of his people. If you remember in the Old Testament, probably the greatest leader in Israel's history is Moses. But towards the end of his life, Moses falters. He's leading the people out of Egypt towards the promised land, but he has a couple of issues and is then restricted from leading the people across the border and into the land of promise. And so at that point in the story, Yeshua takes the leadership baton from Moses and brings the people through the Jordan River and into the promised land where they were finally going to become according to God's promise to Abraham, a great nation who would bring blessing to all the other nations in the earth. Yeshua was the one who was going to lead God's people to fulfill the purpose he had for them. And Yeshua, of course, is Joshua. right? The two names, Jesus and Joshua, are one and the same. Once you kind of do the gymnastics to get from the Old Testament language to the New, from Hebrew Greek. And the two names, of course, as the same name, share the same meaning, right? The name Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus means the Lord saves. And it was an appropriate name for the Old Testament Yeshua, for Joshua, right? Because through him, the Lord saved his people from the many enemies who they kind of faced when they entered in and took over the land he had promised to them. He was the instrument of the Lord's saving for the Lord's people, And it's also an appropriate name for Jesus, the second Yeshua, who is this born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit miracle child because the angel says the reason you're to give him the name Jesus is because he will save his people from their sins. But notice the difference, right? He will save his people from their sins. The first Yeshua, Joshua, was the instrument of the Lord's saving. But this second Yeshua, Jesus, is the Lord himself. The very next verses of our passage tell us that the child Mary will have will be born in fulfillment of the prophecy to Isaiah that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and while his name will be Yeshua, the Lord saves, his nickname will be Emmanuel, God with us. So in Jesus, the Lord saves by coming to be with And there's extreme significance in the fact the angel tells Joseph to name the child Jesus. While a rose by any other name might smell just as sweet, the child born to Mary could not be called anything but Jesus. Because he was to be the one who would finally save his people from their sins. So these and other resonances would have come to mind when Joseph heard the angel's proclamation. But, we have to dig one layer deeper at least, to really clear away the baggage of 2,000 years, and get a clear, crisp picture of what was being celebrated that first Christmas morning. When Joseph heard the angel say to name the child Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins, How would Joseph have understood that? What would that have meant to him? And this is a crucial question, not just for this 25 minutes this morning, but I think for the whole way we live the Christian life together. It's like the sisterhood of the traveling pants, right? Has anyone seen that movie? I used this analogy in a men's breakfast once. It didn't go over that well. I'm hopeful with some ladies in the room today. It might be better. In the sisterhood of the traveling pants movie, there's this strange magical pair of jeans that adapts to the size and shape of whoever is wearing them, right? There's, I think, four girls who are best friends, and so they trade it around. And whoever puts it on, you know, whatever size or shape they may be, the the pants change size to fit. That is something like what's happening here. Our conception of salvation, I think, adapts to fit how we understand sin, right? So the way we understand the saving work of Jesus is going to adapt based on what we think we need to be saved from. Does that make sense? And so, this is crucial where we have to ask, what would Joseph have understood it to mean that Jesus would save his people from their sins? Because our, our understanding of salvation is going to change and ebb and flow based on that. Based on what we understand it to be or what Joseph understands it to be and where we should land when it's all said and done. And Christians today, I think compared to Joseph, tend to define sin a little bit, maybe more narrowly, individualistically than Joseph would have done, right? I think the general mindset maybe is that sin is the things I personally have done wrong that have left me deserving of punishment for those things. And so the corresponding understanding of salvation would be that the work Jesus has done is to save me from the punishment I deserve. And guess what, church? That's true. Each one of us has contributed to the chaos of sin in our world and the way that sin is running rampant and kind of poisoning this world that God has created. And Jesus does come and save us from facing the brunt of the consequences of that sin. So that's true. But it just might be a little too narrow, right? Because while sin and salvation include those elements, biblically and historically, they're much bigger concepts. For Joseph and his first century Jewish peers, the big issue with sin wasn't so much that it meant they were going to be individually guilty, right? God had provided for them a system of sacrifice that if they followed it faithfully would make atonement for their sins. Their guilt would in some way that God had designed be covered by the system of sacrifice. So in obedience to God, they would participate in that system and their individual guilt would be covered. So that wasn't the heart of the issue for them when it came to the question of sin. Rather, the issue for sin... With Joseph and his peers and with the people of God in the Old Testament was that sin kept the people of God from living faithfully. Ultimately, the people of God living faithfully is what the whole story of the Bible is about, right? From the very beginning, where God's good world is corrupted by sin, God chooses one special people who are to be his own people and to live faithfully in his ways and through their living faithfully, they would bring blessing and salvation and healing and redemption to all the other nations, all the other peoples in the world. But the people of God had never lived up to this calling, which meant not only were they in a bad spot, but in a sense, the whole world was doomed because salvation was to come through the people of God. So when Joseph heard that Jesus would save his people from their sins, he didn't just hear, you won't have to face the punishment you deserve. He would have heard, the whole story is about to find its fulfillment. This child is going to defeat the power of sin and free the people of God to finally fulfill their purpose, to live faithfully, and through them, bring salvation to the whole world. The salvation of the whole planet will finally be able to begin to unfold because the people of God will finally be freed from sin to live faithfully. When the angel told Joseph to name the child Jesus, he might have thought of Isaiah 53, which is where the suffering servant comes to bear the sins of others. Joseph might have thought of that, but there's no question he would have thought of Isaiah 9, which we've looked at throughout Advent. That though the people of God, because of sin, were walking in darkness, they have seen a great light. Because the child is born to them on whose shoulders the government would rest. A child who would sit on the throne of David and rule over God's people in justice and righteousness and teach them to live justly and righteously. Leading them to become who they were always meant to be. A people whose life would witness to God's goodness and love and through whom the nations would experience God's goodness and love. In other words, church, Joseph would have understood that the child to be born to Mary was the promised messianic king whose kingdom was finally coming. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? Born is the king of Israel. That's what we celebrate, but we don't stop there, right? We sell this king short if we simply celebrate his birth and blow out the candles and go on with our lives. The celebration of Christmas is meant to spur us on to submit to his kingly rule over our lives. In a world church that is torn apart by violence and division and hatred, we declare as the people of God that the child born on Christmas Day, is the true and rightful king, not only over us, but over the whole world. We declare that the government is on his shoulders, and that his rule is one of justice and righteousness and peace, and that he calls all peoples to submit to that rule. And as we declare the reign of King Jesus, we embody it so the world can see that it's true. We don't wait for the world to catch up to us, right? We enact the kingdom here today in the present. So we are a people who beat our swords into plowshares and care for those in need and refuse to comply with oppression and injustice and abuse and say there is room at the inn for the stranger and the foreigner even if they can't afford it because unlike the rulers of this world, our king isn't vying for absolute power. He already has it. So... This Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of King Jesus, born to save his people from their sins, the challenge for us is to consider if our lives align with his salvation. As a people who have been forgiven, who have been freed from the power and dominion of sin, do our lives faithfully witness to the salvation that Jesus has won for us? Does our life together testify? the watching world, that we are people of a different kingdom ruled by a different king. The question of Christmas is not, was Jesus born, yes or no, it's what have we done with the fact that he was? The question of Christmas is whether we can truthfully say in the words of one of my favorite musicians, my first allegiance is not to a flag, a country, or a man. My first allegiance is not to democracy or blood, it's to a king and a kingdom. So as we enter a new year of life lived under the rule of King Jesus, the challenge for us is to assess our lives in light of this king and his kingdom. My challenge, church, is read the Gospels and remind ourselves of what life in the kingdom of Jesus looks like. Read the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters. Read it again and again and again. It's like the constitution of Jesus' kingdom. Read the Sermon on the Mount and ask ourselves... Does our life align with the rule of this king? And let's go forward together into a new calendar year with a commitment to embody together the reality that the baby born at Christmas is born a king over a kingdom of which we are part and of which, into which the whole world is invited to participate. Amen. Let me pray and then we'll sing. Lord, we thank you for the good news, the gospel of Christmas, that the most vulnerable creature on this earth, a small baby born in a manger, could be born as king over God's people and over the whole world. We celebrate that fact, that the world's longing for hope and love and peace and joy and has found its fulfillment in Jesus. That our longing, God, the longing deep within each one of us for things to be made right, for there to be some new way for the world to work, has found its fulfillment in Jesus. We celebrate that this Christmas. God, we haven't waited for no purpose. We waited so that we can finally say, born is the king. He rules over us and over this world, and we celebrate his good rule over us. And God, we ask with earnesty and fervor that you would work in us to make us a people whose lives reflect the rule of King Jesus. That we would be a people whose life is a testament to the fact that his kingdom is not of this world. God, that you would give shape to our lives in such a way that our neighbors would notice the difference. That we would be a people of a different king ruled, ruling over a different kingdom. God, let our lives this year give shape to that. Speak to us, God. Guide us in our minds and our hearts as we read the scriptures and, and discuss these things with one another. Lead us into new things, God. New challenges, new revelations of what it looks like for us to be a people in the here and now who embody the full reality of the reign of King Jesus. God, we long for this to take place. We pray that as we enter a new year where the world around us is making commitments that are anchored in their own strength, they would see in us a commitment to something that is totally outside of ourselves, but that because it's Jesus, does indeed take shape in our lives. Lord, we thank you. And we ask that you would continue to work in us as we enter this new year. We celebrate King Jesus this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen.